It's a good time with that. Looking forward to Thanksgiving. Don't forget, next Sunday, it's a Thanksgiving service, so there won't necessarily be a message. There will be, uh, you all be thinking about ways that you want to thank the Lord that he's given you. And I'm going to just say this now so that it doesn't have to be awkward next Sunday. There should be no awkward silences. There should be no awkward silences. If you don't know what to thank the Lord for, then thank the Lord that you're breathing. Thank the Lord that your limbs work. Because there are some people who don't have that situation. There are people even in our room that have difficulty doing things that we take for granted, like a deep breath. So there's plenty to thank the Lord for. So it doesn't have to be something super amazing, like, oh, I was this happened and then this and then this happened. It could just be like, you know what, I thank the Lord that I actually have a sound mind to be able to praise him and to believe in him because there are people that do not. If you know anything about the Bible in Daniel chapter 4, God told Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, that I'm going to take away your ability to think like a rational human being and for seven years you were going to eat grass and look like an animal. The most powerful man in the world. Read Daniel 4 when you get a chance, not right now because we're in church. <laughs> so God can take away the cognitive ability to express praise to him. So if you have nothing else to thank him for, then thank him for that. So there shouldn't be awkward silences next week. There should be plenty, even if you're struggling, with some things to thank God for. Also, next Sunday, let's bring your pastor some leftovers Sunday, so don't forget. Don't forget. If I don't get a plate, your membership will be revoked. And I will take Mike's portion since he's not back yet. And y'all know I'm joking. I don't need an extra plate. All right, let's talk about where we at this week. We're going to be in, in Romans 10. We're going to primarily look at verses 6 through 13. Last week, we looked exclusively at verses 1 through 5, which is Paul was making in context, Paul is describing why, why the Jews don't have salvation, some of them, and why the Gentiles do. And essentially, it's what righteousness do you trust? What righteousness do you trust? What, for everyone who wants to stand before God and be declared not guilty of their sins, what laws do you submit to? How did you get there? In other words, why do you deserve to go to heaven? What, what moral standards did you do? And were they what God required? So we saw last week that it is possible, like the Jews, to have zeal for God, but not according to accurate knowledge of God. So I can obey him. I can know that he exists. I can desire to obey him, but I can obey him on my terms. That's the human condition, not a Jewish condition. But in context, Paul was trying to describe what faith according to what righteousness according to the law of Moses means versus what righteousness according to faith means. And he said that some Gentiles are considered in the family of God because they believed in the righteousness that God requires by faith in Jesus, not faith in the law. Everyone, I, maybe you haven't done this happen to you. I've been to many funerals in my day, a few. Some of them clearly, from my vantage point, from non-Christians. They weren't believers, but I knew them. So out of respect, went to the funeral. 
And most funerals will say something like this. Well, we are here today and we are saddened, but this is also a joyous occasion because our brother or sister is no longer suffering. They're in a better place. And then people get excited about that. And if I knew them, I think quietly to myself, I don't know about that. And I'm not saying it to be funny. I'm saying it because I'm concerned. And I know a bunch of us, when we were in the streets and people died, and they would talk about God needed another angel. I don't know where that came from, but it's not the Bible. We don't become angels. But there's this sense where when you die, no matter how you lived, you're in a better place. Why don't people say, hey, they in hell right now enjoying the time? Why does everyone think you go to a better place? Because no one wants to deal with the consequences and the reality of the moral decisions you make in this life. So some people will ignore the moral decisions this person made for the purpose of making people feel better. But there's a reality biblically. The moral decisions we make in this life will determine accurately where we place in the next life. What moral laws you live by will determine your residency in eternity. And so Paul is making it clear in context that there are non-Jewish people who believe in the righteousness. The moral law that they submit to is believing in Jesus. And he spent the first five verses showing how there are Jews who were chosen, who God's chosen people. They don't submit to the moral law that he says you must believe in. They say, hey, now we're going to obey the law. Now, if God created the Mosaic law, then what he's talking about is any law, any standard of good and evil, any standard of good and evil must be done perfectly. So even if people don't believe in Jesus, when they stand before the Lord, God can judge them based on how perfectly they kept their standard. And if it wasn't perfect, then you technically, eternally, don't get to make it. So God said, let me provide a way out. I'm going to send Jesus. He's going to do it perfectly. I'm going to punish him perfectly. Then he's going to rise from the dead. And then those who believe in him, that trust in him, I will say, okay, they're not going to experience the punishment for their immorality because they are trusting in his morality. So this morning, we're going to move from what does it mean to have righteousness in the law of Moses, which you can't have happen. And by righteousness, it just simply means not guilty before God. Everyone's going to get a verdict. No matter what happens in the courtrooms in this country, everyone will face one main courtroom. Everyone, big or small, popular, unknown, athlete, actor, everyone will face one more courtroom and Jesus will be your defense attorney or your prosecutor. 
And there is no mistrials there. There are no there are no do-overs. There are no, the jury has all the facts perfectly. The acquittal is you believe in Jesus. So Paul is trying to make his case. So we're going to look at what he says and is doing contextually to the church in Rome. And then what is he saying to us, the church in Riverdale this morning? All right, let's start at verse one. Just so we can get the fuller context, because verse six jumps into the middle of a thought. And I want to make sure we get the thought that he's communicating. So we're going to start in verse one. But our primary passage today will be verses six through 13. All right. Quoting from the CSB translation, and I quote. Verse one, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them, the Jews, is for their salvation. I can testify about them that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Since they are ignorant of the righteousness of God and attempted to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Since Moses writes about the righteousness that is from the law, the one who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes from faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart who will go to heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will go into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. On the contrary, what does it say? The message of faith is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame, since there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Father, each week you give me words, insight, I believe measure of clarity to be able to communicate. And you know that I've never taught a sermon that I didn't need for myself. I needed to believe some aspect of this. And by your grace, in teaching these things, I grow further in an appreciation and a depth of belief. But I also know that I am, I'm not you. I'm not gifted enough. I'm not funny enough. I'm not, I'm not good enough to make anyone see the truth that I'm going to say today except you. You have control of the hearts and the minds of these, your sons and daughters. Lord, you have to open them up to believe the truth that's here. I lack the ability. I can say what I believe you've given me to say, but I can't make anyone believe anything. You do that. So while I thank you for this opportunity, I ask you for help with this responsibility. And may everyone hear a much better sermon than I'm able to preach because your spirit 
makes what's being said true burn in the heart to further encourage or convert those who are listening. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's walk through this, what he's saying together. Because as always, often, right, the Bible just talks in ways we just don't. So sometimes it can just be like, man, what in the world is he talking about? We won't even use the word righteousness. Right? We don't talk like that. Right, let's walk through what he's saying here, verses 6 and 7. But the righteousness that comes from faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart who will go up to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will go down into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. All right. What in the world is he talking about? Okay, we're going to answer two questions for this section. What is he doing here? And then what does he mean? All right, because he's doing something and then he means something. All right, so what is he doing here? All right, he's trying to show them the original recipients of this letter, Jews and Gentiles in the Roman church. He's trying to show them that the righteousness that God requires has always been about faith and it's always been accessible. It's always been accessible. The, the way that faith works may be different because it's in Jesus versus laws of Moses, but it's always been accessible. The understanding of how to please God and be righteous before God is accessible. This is what he's trying to help us understand. It is accessible for you to understand what this means. So what he does is he takes a, he takes a couple of verses from Deuteronomy 30, and he uses them, but he processes them through the lens of Christ. He processes them through, now that Christ has come, how do we see these verses? In other words, we interpret these verses through the fact that Christ has come. Now, let's look at the original context first. In Deuteronomy 30, here is Moses. This is at the end of Moses' life. He's talking to potentially millions of Jews who are on their way, at least hundreds of thousands, on their way into the land of Canaan, which is what they were taken from Egypt to go through. They had to wait 40 years in the wilderness because of disobedience. So here's a new generation of Jews, and Moses is giving them their, his final instructions from, based from what God has told him to these people, and he wants to make sure that they understand that the way you understand how to please God is accessible. And so in Deuteronomy 30, here's what Moses says to the Jews that Paul is now using, filtered through believing in Christ. Here's what he says to them in Deuteronomy 30. This is Moses saying, this command I give you today is certainly not too difficult or beyond your reach. It is not in heaven so that you have to ask, well, who to go to heaven and get it for us and proclaim it to us so that we may follow it. And then it's not across the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea, get it for us and proclaim it to us so that we may know it. But the message is very near you in your mouth and in your heart so that you may follow it. So the it who will get it. The it that Moses is talking about to them is the knowledge of what God requires. What is God asking us to do to obey him? This is why they say, well, who will, in verse 12, well, who will go up to heaven, get it for us, and proclaim it to us so that we may follow it? Moses is saying, it's already been proclaimed to you. Don't, don't talk like that, because that means it hasn't been proclaimed to you. 
You see, that's an excuse if you say that. Well, how are we supposed to know what to do? I mean, who's going to go to heaven and get it? It's like, what do you mean who's going to go to heaven and get it? He said it right here. He had two stone tablets, and we wrote all this stuff down, and it's right there. What are you talking about? Who's going to go up to heaven? Who's going to go across the sea to get it? He's saying, don't make excuses. The understanding of what God is requiring of you is near you. It's in your mouth, in your heart. We've already explained these things. I've told you these things, and if you believe these things, it's there. Don't make excuses. Well, I don't know. I didn't know how to obey God. I didn't know what to do. You ever had somebody tell you, well, I, I, didn't, I didn't know. And it's like, I mean, so am I responsible because you didn't know? Like, you, 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 officer, I didn't know I was driving 20 miles an hour over the speed limit. Oh, okay, my bad. Never mind. No, no, no. Let me just, you didn't know. <laughs> like, sometimes people say something like, man, I didn't mean to say that. And I'm like, listen, I appreciate you saying that, but yes, you did. Because Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What you didn't mean for is me to be offended or hear it, but you meant it. That's what you feel. That's what you believe to be true. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That Freudian slip stuff is really just saying, I ain't want nobody else to know it. So Moses is saying, listen, the final instructions I'm giving you before you go to Canaan is that the understanding of what God requires for righteousness you already have. You don't got to go to heaven. You don't got to go across the sea. That does, that's, those are excuses. Don't, don't think like that. God has already provided that for you. It's not in heaven. It's not across the sea. It's near you. I've been with you. We've explained these things. We've written these things down. We've been practicing these, practicing these things. These things are in your heart. You know these things. So if you don't do them, you can't say, I didn't understand I had to do them. It's not my fault based on that principle. Oh, no, no, no. Moses said, no, that's not how it works. It's mouth and heart. Faith always works like this. I believe and then I behave. That's always how faith works, in God at least. I believe and I behave. So Moses is saying, look, there's no excuse to say I don't know what to do to obey God. This is what he's saying to them. Paul is doing the same thing, but in Christ. He's using this verse to communicate an old truth applied in the new way. But contextually, he's saying the Jews, Christ has come. He appeared before all of us. We saw him. Many of us saw him die. Many of us saw him rise from the dead and heard all these things. And so we can't say we don't know what to do. We don't know what righteousness requires. So that's what he's doing. Here's what he means. This is what he means, essentially. Same thing. There's no excuse to disobey God because the righteousness that he is asking for is accessible. It's understandable. But this time it's through Jesus. He's contrasting what righteousness that comes by the law, my own level of obedience. For them, it was the Mosaic law. For us, it's just I'm a good person, whatever that means. He's contrasting that with saying, well, that's not the righteousness that comes from God. And so he uses these same verses, but applies it to Christ. So let's look at what he says again in verse six. He says, the righteousness that comes from faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven. And he says that is to bring Christ down. 
or who will go down into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. So what does he mean by that? Well, here's what he's saying. Do not say in your heart who will descend. This is what he said, in my heart, right? He didn't say with your mouth. He said, do not say in your heart, do not believe this, that who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. What he's saying is, though, when you think like that, when you believe like that, you're acting as though Christ didn't come down from heaven already. You're acting like what Christ did is not official, like it doesn't matter. So if I'm saying, well, who's going to do this? I'm saying, well, no one's done it yet. Who's going who's to ascend to heaven and tell us how to live? That belittles Jesus Christ because he came from heaven already. This is his point. Don't believe this. And by the grace of God, it may not be what many of you believe, but it's definitely a sentiment in the spirit of the age that we live in. Who will ascend into heaven? No, that's to bring Christ down. That's to belittle Christ, to act like he hasn't already come from heaven. And he hasn't already explained what righteousness looks like now from God. So when he says, oh, who will go down into the abyss? He says that is to bring Christ up from the dead. To act as if he hasn't already resurrected and given us a new life. Paul is applying these verses in Deuteronomy specifically to Christ to show that even if you question these things like, well, who's going to go to, then you are demeaning Jesus Christ. And he warns, do not say in your heart. Now, I think he uses that language intentionally because there's a lot of stuff that people don't say that they believe and feel. Them. One of my favorite verses, particularly for introverts, because there's always this dichotomy, well, introverts, and you they're quiet and extroverts are always in everybody's face and introverts is kind of mind themselves. But, you know, I love this verse. There's plenty of verses for extroverts. But Proverbs 17, 28 is for you introverts. It says even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent and, and, and discerning if he holds his tongue, which means you can look mature by not saying nothing. But that doesn't mean you are mature. It just means you're not saying what you really feel. That doesn't mean you're Godly, it just means you're afraid. So he says, don't, don't say this in your heart because people won't say it with their mouths. Most of us, if you've been a Christian for some time, most of us don't say things intellectually. We don't believe, we don't say, man, God isn't real, God doesn't love me. We typically don't say that. We have to be going through a real tough challenge to utter those words. Most of us do not say things Verbally. We say them functionally, though. So you remember when Jesus said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me? You know why he said that? Because he said, look, these people will say Jesus is Lord, but then they do whatever they want. So their hearts aren't there. They don't believe that in their heart. They can say it with their mouths. And so Paul is trying to make sure that you understand in the context, the Jews and the Gentiles understand how Christ fits into this and trying to make sure that we understand how Christ fits into this for our lives. Jesus made righteousness understandable and accessible. If you reject it, it's not due to ignorance. It's probably due to arrogance. In the original context, there's a difference. 
In, in, in Deuteronomy, he says, it is not in heaven, Moses, that you have to ask who will go up to heaven and get it. And then it's not across the sea that you will have to go up and get it. Moses is kind of encouraging them that the possibility of obedience is near. But, but Paul is commanding them, do not say this. Do not believe this. Do not think this way in your heart. Because if it's not Christ, then you will perform some other level of morality. Let me tell you why this is important. I'm going to sidebar for a second and then jump back in. Sidebar. Many people think that like Satan and the devil is like kind of like the god of war, Ares, right? Constant destruction and evil and all this stuff. And we just think unless it's something really crazy like a war in a country, ethnic genocide or, or something else. We don't think that Satan cares about morality. You think, man, he's a father of lies. All he cares about is immorality. But that's not true. Because if Christianity is the only true religion, then why are there so many people, billions of people who live morally? Why do people want to be a good person? Why are there so many different religions that worship a God that try to live moral, that have nothing to do with Christ? That is all satanic. The enemy cares about morality. He just doesn't care about morality motivated by faith in Jesus. Second Corinthians 11 calls him the angel of light. He appears as an angel of light. And it says, so it makes sense that his followers also appear as an angel of light. What is that angel of light? An angel of righteousness, an angel of good. So we're constantly competing, not with morality and immorality, but morality motivated by faith in Christ and morality motivated by anything else but Christ. Don't be deceived. So, so people don't think it's satanic that two people can love each other and, and have sex outside of marriage the way God has defined it. And that's not, that's not, no one thinks that's satanic. It's only when it's an, some crazy thing, like a dude goes in and shoots up a bunch of people. Then it's like, oh, the devil. No, the devil's in a lot of things. He's in a lot of, and if it's morality that is not explained by Christ, and I'm talking about subtle, I'm still on my sidebar for a second. You look at all, all this talk about all this American political morality. People want you to be angry or excited at court cases that have nothing to do with faith in Christ. Nothing to do with it. The church isn't on trial. Nothing to do with Christ. They have to do with amendment rights. And I'm supposed to be excited because some case, the Bible doesn't have no Second Amendment rights, no First Amendment rights. Morality, biblically, is not constitutional. It's biblical. But you got people, believers I'm talking about, fired up. That's not the morality that comes from Christ. And if I'm so fired up and I'm out of the character that Christ requires, if Jesus said, if you say to someone, you fool, you can go to hell for that. If it's not motivated by the Messiah and it's not clearly commanded by him, it is not of righteousness. It may be zeal for God, but it's not according to the knowledge of God. Off the soapbox. So Paul says this, listen, 
It is not across the sea so that you have to ask who will go into the sea and proclaim it for us. He was like, no, nah, this is, you don't got to go anywhere. That belittles Christ. Christ already did that. He died, ascended, descended, all that. He did all that already. We know what we, we got to do. So he says, no, what does it, he says, on the contrary, what does it say? What, is, what does it say? What's the it that he's talking about? The message of righteousness. What is the it? That the word is near you and on your lips and in your heart. He said, this is a message of faith that we proclaim. So he focuses on lips and heart, mouth and heart. He says, essentially, it is with the lips and in the heart that the saving response is made possible. Remember, faith has always been about who you believe in and what you believe about that person. You look at Genesis 15, 6. This is where, the, the, where, where, we, where Abraham becomes the father of the faith of many who believe in God. When it says, look, the Lord said, look, count the stars in the sky. If you can count them. I'm going to make you have as many descendants as you can count. And this was an old dude who had lost the ability to produce children. And it said, Abraham, Abram believed the Lord. And he credited to him his righteousness. So Abraham had to believe that God is who he says he is and that God can do what he said he's going to do. And that belief was credited as righteousness. That faith. It's the same thing. It's all right. I believe in Christ. And I believe in what he did. It's the same thing that started faith. Let me prove this. He says this. This is the message of faith we proclaim. Verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the it that he's talking about is the message of faith that he's proclaiming. And he says two things, confess and believe, mouth and heart. Now, these seem like two different things, but Paul is really describing the effects of genuine faith. It affects what we say and what we believe. It's the opposite of the righteousness of the law of Moses. It wasn't about confessing and believing. This is the contrary, right? So the law of Moses wasn't about confessing and believing, but in Jesus, righteousness is. Well, why is that? What makes that so different? Well, on one level, the Jews didn't have to confess and believe because they were born into their faith. They were born into this religious covenant. A covenant is like a contract that God makes. All right, I'm going to do this and you do this. Even though many of them sinned against God, the fact was that, that God was their God had nothing to do with them. They didn't give their consent. He chose Israel as his people before Israel existed as a people. Circumcision was done to male babies at eight days old. It wasn't like they said, hey, little baby, is it okay if we circumcise you? Go ahead. <laughs> it just didn't happen. It was like, this is what happens. Whether you like it or not, whether you grow up believing or not, the Jews were born into Judaism. They were born into their faith. They were God's people primarily by his declaration, not their own. On one level, they had no choice. 
They were born into the beliefs and customs that they lived in. But in Jesus, we are Christians because we believe, not because we were born into it. Every person who grows up in a Christian home at some point has to say, I believe this because I believe it. You will not find an any credible translation of the Bible that God has cousins, stepchildren, grandchildren, none of that. He has sons and daughters. There's no faith by affiliation. Everyone, even if you grew up in a Christian home, just because you were born in a Christian home doesn't mean you were born into the faith. You were born into the possibility of believing because your family did. But at some point, you have to make a decision to put faith in Jesus Christ on your own. Your faith cannot be your parents. It cannot be, well, my dad said, so that's why I believe. If someone stood up here and gave a testimony before our church and said, hey, you know, I'm a Christian because I was pretty much born into it. We would be like, OK, I think he I think he means he believes it because he was born as a Christian and somehow doesn't know when he became a Christian. But we would need clarity. He said, no, I didn't choose to believe I was born into it. So I'm a Christian. Many of us would be like. And you got, you want to go to lunch afterwards? <laughs> because we know that the testimony is, even if I grew up in the church, at some point, my faith became real. How many times have you heard people grow up in the church and the kids say, you know what, I don't think I was a Christian when I grew up. I got baptized because my, my dad made me or my parents pressured me to do it, but I didn't really believe. But then now at 24, I really believe. This is the reason why my son isn't baptized yet, because I'm not going to pressure him. I want him to do it. Even though I know he believes, I believe he believes, I want him to do it when he's ready to do it, not because I'm his pastor. And I want to, no, 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 no. I don't want you. When you get baptized, I want you to say, I did it because I believe, not because you put pressure on me to believe. Every person who grows up in a Christian home has to make a profession of faith. No one is born into faith in Christ. You must believe on your own. And it's not, it's not ironic, it's not coincidental that the Jews were born into faith, but when you believe in Jesus, you're born again. The Jews need to be born again. We need to be born again. We've already been born into some kind of faith. But when we believe in Jesus, we're born again. It's different. This is one of the reasons why as a church we don't baptize babies. I have great friends who are Presbyterian. They, they do it. We don't do it because we believe that you must confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. And you can't do that as a baby. Now, I think it's fine to do that. I mean, we have baby dedications. All my kids have stood up on this stage and we've said so we're going to dedicate our, we're dedicating raising our kids to believe the Lord. We can't dedicate and guarantee that they will. I know many parents who feel distraught because their kids grow up and they're not saved and, and they feel like it's their fault. I wish I had done this. I wish I had done that. It's not your fault. Sure, we all could have done different things better, but it's not your fault. Everyone makes a conscious decision to accept or reject a message of faith. The Jews were born into belief in God, but in Jesus, you believe on your own. You make a decision to follow him. 
And that's what's different. So what must we confess and believe? You've heard me say this before on the number of occasions that we have to believe in the ontological, the soteriological, and the ethical. So you have to believe that Jesus is Lord. You have to believe that he died and rose from the dead, and then you have to obey him. Paul says the same thing right here. What must we confess and believe? That Jesus is Lord. Not Jesus is a Lord like Game of Thrones. Hello, my Lord. But no, Jesus is Lord, right? That means I believe what he says about himself. And again, this isn't an intellectual belief. Paul isn't saying whoever says the words Jesus is Lord is a believer. This is why people don't like to do altar calls, because you tell all these people they're believers because they, they said this, but they might not even believe it in their heart. They might just go up because their parents like, go up, go up, go up, go, go get saved. You know, you need to get saved. Go up and get saved. <laughs> the first church I ever went to that I got saved in genuinely, man, I went to, I, I did about 50 altar calls. Man, I got saved about 40 times. <laughs> In terms of the way the church worked, no, you just, you believe. You believe. I, people come to me and say, hey, I got baptized when I was like 10, and I'm not sure. Do you think I should get baptized again? And here's my first question. Well, what did you believe when you were getting baptized? That Jesus was, a, no, you don't need to get baptized again. A lot of what happens when you grow up in the church and then you, you what happens is you grow in your understanding and your commitment to the Lord. But baptism is about believing that Jesus is Lord and that he rose from the dead. Not like I'm mature. I get to a certain point. This is why people would get baptized immediately after they heard the message of faith in the Bible. It wasn't like they said, all right, if you believe, come back in two years and see how you live and then get baptized. It was like, no, you get baptized when you believe the message of Jesus Christ. You don't get baptized because, you're, because you have proof of obedience. No, you have proof of faith. But we believe not just intellectually. We believe when we say Jesus is Lord, we believe what he says about himself. We believe what he says about us. And we believe what he says about salvation. We believe what he says about everything. That's what it means that Jesus is Lord. Oftentimes, when, I'm, when I travel and speak, and I don't know why it seems like this, it just seems to be like this. There's a difference between people who talk about believing in God and then use the actual term, the Lord. For some reason, when people talk about the Lord, I feel like they're more genuine than people who talk about God. I'm not saying this isn't a... So I ain't trying to get everybody to be like, shoot, make sure I mention the Lord when I talk about... <laughs> Because it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter if you fool people. you got to stand before God. That's a, that's a courtroom nobody's getting away from. There's, no, there's not going to be any injustice in that courtroom. It's going to be 100% truth. But there's something about this. When you have a relationship with, the, with God, you don't, I, I, it's just interesting. I don't know why. And I'm not saying that, I'm not saying this isn't a rule. Don't, don't send no questions in, questioning me, saying this or judging other people. I'm just saying it seems like when people talk about God, it could be like, like, what God are you talking about? But when people talk about the Lord, they just seem to have more of a genuine connection to him. So I think that it's interesting that he says that you must believe that Jesus is Lord. That means we believe who he is. And what he did and what he says, it says we have to believe that God raised him from the dead. 
Why don't you think it says that he died on the cross? Or do you believe he died on the cross? And the reason why I'm asking that question is because I was actually convicted by this passage as I was studying this. I feel like the Lord said to me in my own vernacular, fam, you've, been pre you've preached a lot of a truncated evangelistic message. And this is what I mean. I'll say stuff like this. I'll talk to people. And I'll be like, listen, man, how do I get to it? But Jesus died on the cross for your sins. So you got to repent and believe in him. And it sounds like, yeah, that's the, that's the message. But what I'm communicating is a good dude was picked, basically a martyr and died. You see, the power of Christianity is not that Jesus died because Gandhi died and a bunch of other people died. The power is that he rose from the dead. That's what makes Christianity different than everything else. There's a lot of righteous, good religious people that died, but none of them came back on their own. I realized, like, wow, I focus more. My, my gospel presentation has, too, has been too crucifixion focused. That's not the power of the message, though. The power and the proof of the message is that he rose from the dead. This is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. Because the resurrection validates the crucifixion. But I spend most of my time convincing people that Jesus died, and that's not impressive. Because a lot of people died. People, soldiers give their lives all the time for the well-being of their, their platoons. People get medals and stuff like that all the time for risking their lives for that. Jesus didn't risk his life. He took his own life and then came back. And the proof of that, I tell people all the time, man, can you prove that? People always talk about the existence of God and proving that God exists. I'm like, listen, fam. If you can prove to me that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then you might have me. You, you convince me. Prove, we'll prove that he did. We'll prove he didn't. See, I don't got to prove. I, I don't feel like I have to prove that Jesus did something. You got to prove that he didn't. Because there are more people that believe that he did than, than, than what you believe. Listen, the enemy is sharp. We don't, you, you think there's a lot of atheists, right? There's not that many professed atheists. There's a lot of functional atheists. But there's many religions, many cultures, many people believe in some higher being. They believe in some force, even the universe, right? That's still a religious belief. People aren't anti-morality. They're not anti-morality. The enemy is not trying to make the world like World War III all the time. He just says, hey, I'm fine if you live in a nice neighborhood, pay your taxes, do all this stuff. Just don't do it because you want to honor the Lord. I'm fine with your. So what makes your obedience different than everyone else is you're motivated to do it because of the Lord. Not because you want to be a good person, a good parent. You want to have a good life. I want to be a good citizen. No, I want to believe and honor the Lord. That's what makes morality different in Jesus. Y'all do a lot of laughing over there. Make sure y'all listening. This is the talks to you. This is an important reality for all of us. For those of us that do have the privilege and the boldness to evangelize, make sure you remember the resurrection. Make that a part of it. Don't stop at the crucifixion. End at the resurrection. 
because a lot of good people died. But no one else can say they rose from the dead. In verse 10, Paul explains what happens when one confesses and believes. He says this in verse 10. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. Again, he's not describing two separate things. He's describing the effect of genuine faith. You cannot, it's like the cross and, it's like the cross and resurrection, right? They, they're two separate events, but they go together because you can't have one without the other. You can't have Jesus died and then rise from the dead. But you know why you have to believe that Jesus rose from the dead? is because you can believe that he died and not believe that he rose from the dead. See, believing that someone died doesn't require faith, but believing they came back from the dead most certainly does. What he's describing here is not two separate things with the heart and the mouth that you can do one without the other. No, he's describing the genuine total effect of someone who has faith in God is that you confess and you believe. One cannot be without the other. Paul is making sure that people don't think if you just confess Jesus is Lord. James said, you believe there is one God? Good, even the demons believe and are afraid. If you, if, you, if you know your Bible, in the Gospels, it was the demons were the first ones to call Jesus the son of man. They were the first ones to identify who he was, and he made them be quiet. They knew, like, son of man, have you come to, they knew who he was. Even the devil did in Matthew and Luke 4, right? He would say, if you are the son of God, but why would you even put that out there? Why would you even put that out there? Like, he could have tempted him without saying if you are the son of God at all. Because he wanted to go after his identity, he wanted to make him question his identity. And every time we're tempted and we fall, we question our identity. It's not coincidental. It's the same strategy. It's been working good for some thousands of years on people. He's making sure it's not just Jesus is Lord. A lot of people say that. He's saying, no, you actually believe, genuinely believe that he rose from the dead. You can't have one without the other. This is his point. And this is why it's important. If you want to know if someone's a Christian, don't start with how do they live. Start with what do they believe. This is the measuring stick. Now, we're not talking about maturity. We're not talking about, we're talking about just do you believe? Are you a Christian based on what the Bible commands? You might be immature, like many of us can be. There are areas where all of us are immature. But what do you believe? If you want to know if someone a Christian, like, do they believe that Jesus is Lord and that he died and rose from the dead? Because if he rose from the dead, then you believe that what God said that means is what it means. If Jesus rose from the dead, then we have to say that, okay, well, then what you said about all things is true. If Jesus rose from the dead, then we have to say, then you being the Savior is true. You're the one that salvation comes through. If Jesus rose from the dead, this is why it's important that you believe that. Anyone can say, demons can say Jesus is Lord. When I was in India, I think it was the first time. I think I told you that story. We were surrounded. And I thought we were about to be martyred. There was hundreds of people. They were yelling at us. And I was like, wow, this is it. It's a wrap. I was waiting for stones to fly. 
And then it didn't happen by the grace of God. That was the most intense moment. I've been shot at all that stuff. I've been locked up. I, that was the most intense moment of my life. I was like, wow, this is crazy. Everyone was screaming. And in the language, when you don't understand what Pill might say, they could be like, yeah, that's a nice shirt, but you don't, it don't sound like it. <laughs> when someone's talking to you firmly in another language, they could be like, oh, well, yeah. And they might be like, man, that shirt is, I, I want that shirt, bro. But when you hear it, it's like, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. And then all these people are yelling. I'm turning around and everybody's crying. And I'm like, man. Well, after that happened, I was with one of the dudes. His name was John David. They all changed their names to biblical names when they become Christians. And he talked about spiritual warfare over there and how supernatural it is. And for us, spiritual warfare is more like internal and things like that. But for them, like he, I remember he told me a story. He said one time, one night, the Lord woke him up and said that there's a demon among them. And so he got up and he walked around and was looking. And then he went down into the kitchen. And they don't have, like, they had electricity where we stayed, but it wasn't like, oh, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a different level of electricity. Yeah. But he said they, he walked around, and he went into the kitchen, and he sensed the Lord say, the demon is here. And then he looked, and he saw a little boy, a, not a little boy, but a boy, like, in the corner, possessed by a demon. And so I said, well, what would you do? Because, you, know, you know, we don't see stuff like that. We Americans, right? I mean, there's some of us that have like a charismatic sense where we'd be like, man, oh, we're going to cast that demon out. We're going to speak in tongues. But the rest of us would be like, I'm, I'm fainting. I'm gone. <laughs> Let's be honest. Like you, it's one thing to watch a scary movie, but some of y'all can't make it in a haunted house when you know it's fake, right? right. Let's be honest. Right. Some of us hear noise at 3.30 in the morning. Be like, man, what? Walking slow, peeking. All of it. So I said, what did you do? And it ended, what I love is in, in India, they do a lot of like this. They shake yeah. their head. So that means like they, that means they give, that means yes or like, but that also means like he was getting ready. He smiled. It's kind of like a way to, so he smiled and said, oh, he cast out the demon and had fun. And I said, what you mean you have fun with the demon? And so he said, I told the demon in the name of you, stand up, sit down, twirl around. <laughs> this is what he was saying. What is nine times five? All, I mean, he was saying all this stuff. Then he said, he said, we all, and other, other pastors said this too. Remember this guy Moses said it. We always make the demon say, Jesus is Lord. He said, we always make them say that. And they fight, Jesus is Lord. They have to say it. This is what he said to me. This was normal for them. And I had experiences that showed that was true. One night, I woke up early in the morning. I was sleeping facing like this way, the, the bathrooms. And I had this sense of, there was a demon present. And then I heard this voice say, don't turn around. So I'm laying there like, dag. <laughs> I was like stuck. It was like, man, don't turn around. There's a demon present. And I was like, man. So I was sitting there like, what do I, because I'm not comfortable. You got to understand, it was an air mattress. The floors was concrete. I'm a big dude. I need that softy soft. <laughs> so I'm sitting there uncomfortable like, man, what do I do? And so then I was trying to muster up courage like, Lord, give me grace. But this voice like, don't turn around. <laughs> and so, the, you know, I got courage from I was like, man, I'm from D.C., man. I'm turning around, man. So I just flipped over and I was expecting to see like, yeah. And then the door opens up. And, like, <gasps> and it was John David. I said, what you doing, man? Because, you know, when you, get angry, when you get scared and you don't mean to, you get offended, right? You get angry first, right? Hey, don't do that, man. I said, what you doing, John David? And he said, 
the Lord woke me up and said, a demon is present. And I said, oh, me too. So we sat on the balcony of this orphanage for hours. And I just said, bro, how does it work? And he said, I said, have you ever seen a demon? He said, no, they don't appear like that, but you can sense their presence. He was talking about all this stuff. And then as we were talking, this dog came up, started barking. Then another dog and another dog and another dog and another dog. And I said, are those dead? He said, yeah, that's done. And we just prayed and waited. And then Yesu Potom came, who was like the big dog. He's like the Apostle Paul. Soon as his truck pulled up, pew, them joints took off. And he was like, we can go to sleep now, brother. I said, fam, I ain't going to sleep. <laughs> He's talking about, huh, I'm not sleeping for a couple of years after this moment. Even demons can say Jesus is Lord. They have to admit that. The scripture tells us every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. But do you believe in your heart that he rose from the dead? That is what makes motivates why you live the way you live. Beginning in verse 11, Paul gives some encouraging words for those who do believe because believing is not a popular thing to do back in this day and in our day today. Paul gives some encouraging words in verse 11. He says this, for the scripture says, he's quoting from Isaiah 28, 16 and Joel 2, 32. He says this, for the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now in context, remember the context. Paul is trying to make sure that Jews and Gentiles know that salvation is available through Jesus and that if you're a Gentile, you're not going to be shamed even if the Jews try to shame you because you genuinely believe in Jesus. For everyone, Jew or Gentile, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the context that he's speaking of. But in our context, I'm sitting across in a room where many people actually believe that Jesus is Lord. So what do we take from this? How do we get encouraged by this? Because we've already agreed to that. We believe in our heart that he rose from the dead. This passage reminds us. See, our battle is not necessarily, well, faith in Jesus or faith in Moses. Like, which one should I pick? Our battle is often, how do I keep going once I believe in Jesus? I do a lot of counseling. It's a rare occasion that I sit in front of someone that says, you know, I'm not sure if I should have faith in the Lord or faith in Buddhism or faith. It's a rare occasion. Most people sit in front of me with faith in the Lord like, man, it's just hard to persevere. It's hard to go through this trial. It's hard to deal with my coworkers where people just are, don't believe they all these type of challenges. It's rarely like, okay, is it, is it really faith in Jesus or faith in? No, it's usually I believe, but it's hard to keep going. It's hard to resist sin. Well, this verse, this passage, this, por this portion of the scripture is meant to encourage us. Because if we measure this verse by what we see in our culture, we could say God is lying. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's been growing and growing if you believe in Jesus to be shamed by the culture, right? He's not talking about that. He's making a guarantee that our faith is not in vain because when it's all said and done, he will not put us to shame. He's not saying that we won't be shamed by culture. 
He's saying you won't be shamed by Christ. Like Jesus is that much of a wise and loving God that he sees all the effort. He sees all the struggle. And he knows you genuinely believe in him even though you stumble sometimes. Where other people may judge you and judge you for what you do, God loves you for who you are. See, when you become a believer, sin is not something that you are. It's something that you do occasionally. It changes. People will shame you for trusting in the righteousness of Christ when you stand before them. But we will not be put to shame when we stand before him. That's what he's saying here. If you call on the name of the Lord because you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, he says you are saved. And then you have part of your life living to obey that and to live by that, that righteousness. He says you won't be put to shame. These are words that we need in the culture that we live in because we see a growing resentment towards our, our faith in his righteousness our stance of moral things that people think like, no, those are old times. You need to change. It's like, nah, I can't. The challenge to believe different things and approve of different things or be shamed by the culture is at an all-time high in our cultural context. Earlier, Juan said, you, most of you would know this couple, Alex and Megan Mercado. They are former members of our church, people who were missionaries that went to other countries to do work for Christ. And they could tell you how different it is in different cultures. It's a different time. In other cultures, they kind of accept suffering and persecution as part of what it means to believe. When I was in India, all the ladies had these red dots on their head. And that red dot meant you believe in the Hindu deities of the day. One in particular, Shiva the Destroyer, this red dot represented it. But once they got baptized, the water washed that red dot off. And those women knew that I'm not going to put that red dot back on because it means that I believe in the same Hindu deity but believe in Christ. But they were all terrified because they had husbands that would physically harm them or they would be shunned by their villages. So when they got baptized and came up out of that water and that red dot was gone, they knew what it meant and they accepted that. A lot of times in our country, a lot of what we're fighting for is to not suffer. Yeah. No, no, if they change his laws, it's gonna, we're going to suffer. Maybe that might be what's necessary for the American church, for real. That's a different sermon, though. Y'all don't want that smoke this morning. <laughs> and I got the meat, brother. <laughs> Everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. He's not talking about the culture. He's talking about himself. This is a persevere word right here. This is a persevere word for us. Brothers and sisters, whatever you're going through, this is a persevere word. Believe in the righteousness that he has given us, that he has described. Don't have a zeal for God, but you do it on your terms. Now, we all fall short of that on some level. We're not talking about... We, every time we sin, we do that. We're, I'm talking about living a lifestyle where you just are perpetually immature or satisfied with mediocrity in your faith, which means a different kind of righteousness that you could find out wasn't a righteousness that God required. 
No. We persevere because we will not be put to shame, even if we are getting shamed by the culture around us. This is our hope. It's never horizontal. It's always vertical. The only horizontal hope we have is that Jesus hung partly horizontally on the cross. It's vertical. We trust this. I believe this because you said this. And my obedience will be because I believe that Jesus is Lord and that he rose from the dead. And that means I believe everything he said. And so we try to live that way for his glory and our good. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, you know intimately in details that I'll never know each and every person in this room and those watching on some device through the camera. As I prayed in the beginning, I don't have the ability to reach or affect anyone. If anything I said was true, Father, I pray that you would impress it upon the heart of people. Lord, may each of us be encouraged, not because of what we see horizontally, but because of what we believe ontologically. We believe that Jesus, you are Lord. And we believe that you rose from the dead and it is the motivating factor for why we do what we do. Give us the, remind us, if, 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 we, if we don't bring the resurrection into our evangelistic presentations, remind us. We don't just, we don't preach the cross and not the resurrection. We preach it all. For they, they may be separate events, but they're one, one reality. Father, help us to continue to trust and believe, to believe and behave, and to not get caught up. Not that we can't have opinions or care about things, but Lord, may our, may our understanding of the culture we live in and our desire to try to be effective in this culture, may it not take us away from the righteousness that you require that we set up our own moral code for how we deal with people who disagree with us on certain things. In Revelation 7, you described a scene where every nation, tribe, tongue will stand before the throne. We will all wear white robes and say, worthy is the lamb. And there will be people there that did not believe what we believe in certain things here. But we believe the main thing, that you are Lord and that you rose from the dead. May that guide us this week as we enter Thanksgiving. May that motivate us next Sunday as we give thanks, different people coming to the microphone, just sharing as we sing and worship you. You're worthy of that. You're also worthy of our obedience, our allegiance, for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen.